When you make love to someone you're in love with, there's nothing better in this world. Welcome to the Gary Scott Thomas Show. Here's what we know. The podcast with unexpected conversations. Listen each week as we engage in unscripted conversations where we'll be just as surprised as you will be with where the dialogue goes. So join us each week and be privy to the captivating conversations that are sure to ensue. Here's your host, Gary Scott Thomas. Welcome to the latest edition of Here's What We Know. And when I read about this guy, I said, oh, that's someone I can talk to because you want to talk about universal experiences, something that if you're lucky or unlucky enough, everybody has brushed up against this iceberg. I have Dr. Thomas Jordan, who's written the book, Learn to Love, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Life. Ow, ow. It's, it's, it's helpful and hurtful at the same time. <laughs> Thomas, how are you? Mm. Oh, pretty good. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, the end of the title is Love Life, Disappointing Love Life. Yeah. Your disappointing love life, right? That's right. It's the disappointing love okay. life. Uh, so I wanted to make sure I got that that in right the entire thing because I've just so. First of all, let me get just a little bit of your background so everybody knows exactly who Thomas Jordan is. Uh, you've been doing this for a while. Yes, sir. Over thirty years here in New York City. Wow! And you've yeah. you've. Uh, uh, Go ahead. You've seen some things in New York City because there's some peculiar characters who live in New York City. Uh, yes, sir. Everyone's unique here. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've been working in Manhattan as a psychologist and an interpersonal analyst. Um, I study interpersonal process. That's what that means. And, uh, you know, interpersonal process is good and can also be bad. So, uh, there's both angles on that. And uh, I learned a few things. I was attracted to the issue of uh, love life problems because over the years I've seen so many people uh, with love life problems. And I came to the conclusion, and this one's a little bit of a shocker to me, at least at first, was that most people are not in control of their love lives. That's, uh, that's the first bit of uh, realization that I used to begin writing the book with. And uh, the proof for that, in my opinion, is the numbers of people I saw who were repeating love life problems over and over again. Uh, also, the this relentless divorce, uh, uh, this divorce rate, which is fifty percent for for first marriages, goes up to sixty for second and seventy for for third marriages. So it's like, what's happening? And if people and if people weren't married and were in a committed love relationship, what do you think that the, the, the rate of breakup is? It's probably much higher. So something's going on. And the third issue was uh, my own love life, which uh, I realized in, uh, in some personal treatment that I was in at the time, I was repeating patterns over and over again and making the same mistakes. And I learned a few things about my own love life, and I made some changes. I've been married for 27 years um, as a consequence of those changes. So I figured, let me boil this down into something that anybody can read and easily read and, and learn about and make changes from. See, I, I find that Fascinating, as, as all of us do, especially the, I, you know, we all heard about the 50% divorce rate on first marriages. I had no idea second and third marriages go up, not down. Cause I would think once you've, yeah. once you've felt that failure, it seems like you'd go out of your way, not, and, and I use the word failure simply because I don't have a better word for it. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. you know, but it's, but it's, you would, you would try to avoid it at all costs, but to realize that, that people are actually quicker to, as we say in the South, Cut bait, you know. Cut bait, right? Yeah, and, and they repeat. See, the problem is your your theory would work wonderfully if people learn something, and mm. keyword is learn something about what went wrong the first time. But unfortunately, unfortunately, they repeat what's familiar. And yeah. even though you got a different partner and a different personality, the repetition is unbelievable, and sometimes. People just make a total disconnect between what they've learned and what they repeat. And uh, a common example for me is I'm sitting in my office with someone getting an initial 
bit of information from the from the patient, from the person, and they tell me they grew up in a home, say, with a violent alcoholic father, right? They witnessed that as a child, and they married two men who are alcoholic and violent. So uh, at that point, I say to the person, do you think there's a relationship between your childhood experience and what happened in your adulthood marriages? And the look on people's faces oftentimes is like, what? That disconnect between what we learn growing up and what we can repeat in our love lives is, I think, the root of the problem. With what you do for a living, I would see, to me, and this is just as a layman, uh, it seems like viewing ourselves Critically, and when I use the word critically, I mean, for those, I, I know you understand what I'm saying about their listing. I'm not talking about tearing yourself down. I'm talking about a realistic no. view of what you mm-hmm. do and your actions. I would think it would have to be, it has to be the hardest and the scariest thing that most humans can be asked to do. Well, I, it, yes, but I think there are ways to help people go there, do that. That help, and one of them is to establish trust with someone. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the difference between, between therapy that works and therapy that doesn't. Uh, when therapy works, uh, you're working with someone who realizes trust is important, um, who realizes that there's a way to look at oneself that's effective, and uh, and a person can tolerate and get better at, and. Uh, at the, the beginning is always a, a you know a little bit scary for most people because you're opening up doors and windows, you're taking a look in the closet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the advantages, the rewards are unbelievable. In my book, I write about uh, the solution to this problem, <clears throat> and I call it learning how to work on your love life. Basically, I like that phrase, learning how to work on your love life. Gary, we work on everything else, financial, you know, physical, medical, educational, our work lives. Why not the love life? And I think the problem with, with, with that is that uh, most of what we learn about love is learned in the family of origin. And, you know, that's been a sacred place. We don't want to mess with it, you know. But I think it's very important to review what we've learned. And the good news about that word learning, and that's why I love that word learning, is when you learn something that's unhealthy, you can unlearn it. And in my book, I talk about a simple method of unlearning, where you identify what I call the psychological love life. It's the love life inside of your mind, what you bring to the party, what you project into your interpersonal dealings with eligible people to form a love relationship. That's your psychological love life. It can be healthy, it can be unhealthy, um, knowing what's in your psychological love life allows you to enter a process of unlearning and learn something better. And that's the great hope. Now, because you do say in your book that it, it starts early. It, it, the What you're learning starts early and you're con- constantly accumulating information, whether you realize it or not, of how. Yes, sir. Very important. Of how uh-huh. your, your family interacts, how your parents interact, how your siblings uh-huh. interact. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's amazing about. And, it, and it's something as a parent, I have a nine and 11 year old and I, I consciously sit back and remind myself I am teaching because I have sons. I am teaching these boys how I, you know, whether I want to or not, how, uh-huh. how you interact with with your partner, with your with your wife or your spouse or whatever the case may be. Uh, and, uh-huh. and, and try to be very cognizant of that, because I really when I was going over the, the materials, when I was t- getting ready to talk to you. Of course, there's no way you cannot help but reflect upon what you learned growing Absolutely. up. Absolutely, you know. Absolutely, and and it's, it's right. That's uh-huh. excellent. <laughs> that's the intention. <laughs> well, yeah, and, right. and, and that's what we all do. I mean, you. When it comes to your parents, what do you think that you learned that that obviously you sat back and said, "I had to, I had to figure out some things." What were some of the blocks oh. that you faced? Yes, yes, and I and I. I put this into the book because, you know, I, I was, I was uh, wondering whether or not I should use case studies, you know, and deal with the issue of confidentiality. And I said, 
the hell with that. Let me let me use myself as a case study, and in that way help people realize how this thing can happen and how it can be uh, unlearned. So um, I grew up in a home with a mother who was dependent on her parents. Grandparents lived upstairs. She never had any freedom in her life. She was very dependent, very controlling, and self-centered in a certain way. And these were ways in which she learned how to survive in, in the extended family. And I learned that women were dependent and controlling. And so when I left home, my love life consisted of finding dependent and controlling women, and in some instances, expecting dependency and control, even when it wasn't there. That's how strong that learning was. And then in an analyst's office years later, now I'm talking about my early to middle 30s, I realized with his help that I was using my mother as a blueprint for what I was looking for. And here's the, and you, you put your finger on it. It's unconscious learning. You don't know you're doing it. That's the problem. That's the problem. If I ran out in the street and stopped a stranger and said, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, what did you learn about love relationships in your life? People would look at me like, you're a little weird. Get out of here. <laughs> you know? So the point was I had to, I had to define my psychological love life. And what I mean by that is what I learned about love relationships, how I was dealing with it, uh, how I was projecting it into my love life, how I was unconsciously choosing people, behaving in a certain way, believing things about love relationships that came from that learning so I could begin unlearning it. And the unlearning process involved challenging what I had learned and became aware of and beginning to realize what I had to do to correct it. And the corrections are oftentimes the opposite. Um, controlling persons, trying to find someone who's more relaxed and, 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 and more free in a love relationship instead of controlling. A dependent, uh, I looked for people who were independent and I had these ideas in my conscious mind. I found a woman who was more free in a love relationship and not controlling, and I married her. <laughs> and I've been married for 27 years. <laughs> well done. Can I ask you, <laughs> yeah. well, can I ask you, what did you learn from your father and how he dealt with your mother in that scenario? Yes. What, what yes. came from he, you? What going? I learned, absolutely, yeah. I learned that a father, a man, takes care of a dependent woman and tolerates the control. And that's what he did. And it wasn't often easy for him. I saw his vulnerabilities, especially when I became an adult. I saw how difficult it was when my mother was in that controlling mode. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was learning not only from my mother, but also from my father how to cope. I learned from my mother the partners to find, and I learned from my father how to cope with it until it didn't work anymore, and that was the opportunity to do something about it. Can I ask you, is that something, if you're, if you're in that position, and I'm not just, I'm not saying you, I'm not singling out you, but if you're in that position and your parents are still alive, my, mine aren't, but if your parents are still alive, do you think it's healthy to ever address that with them, or is that something you should just take that lesson, apply it to you, and let them live their lives? Um. I, I've had patients tell me that they've actually had a sit down with their parents, 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 where a review of history took place, uh, an honest, interactive conversation about what it was like. And um, in some instances, not many in my experience, but in some instances, apologies were stated. Uh, forgiveness was offered, hugs and acceptances were experienced. And I was so envious of that. Mm. I must that I didn't have that opportunity. I, uh, I tried as a consequence of my explorations in myself, my own personal treatment experiences. I, I tried to talk to my parents about what happened. It was a little easier with my father 
little harder with my mother. My mother just couldn't go there. She felt too much. I think she felt uh, uh, a guilt feeling, perhaps shame, embarrassment, something like that. Even though it wasn't done angrily, it wasn't done with resentment. I wanted just to be able to reflect. And I have to tell you, had she been able to do that, I would have gave her a big hug and kiss, and I would have thanked her for that experience. But I never had the opportunity. A little better with my father. We actually had, I was my father's fishing buddy. And so, you know, long trips to the place mm-hmm. where we go fishing early in the morning, we talk about stuff. He was a, he was an uneducated man, but kind of philosophical, if you know what I mean. And he, uh, he and I would talk about life, and it was very useful. He didn't have those book smarts to get in the way. Some of the people who just have met the most of me have been able to go live, uh-huh. have lived oh, life yeah. and seen it uh-huh. and said, yes, sir. this is what I have is this experience. And I know, I know you've read, read Shakespeare. You know, I know you know who Milton uh-huh. Keynes uh-huh. is, but... I've lived uh-huh. this life. <laughs> and, yes, know, sir. Yes, sir. You know, the yeah. interesting thing that you talked about, I, I have to ask, do you have siblings? Uh, I have three siblings. See, the interesting yes, thing three brothers. Me, three brothers. See, I have I have four sisters. I had a brother, and he's passed away, but I have, okay. I, I have four uh-huh. sisters. What I have found as we have gotten older is that, honestly, we remember everything differently. So, I, uh-huh. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, right. you know, and, and so and that's what I was saying when you have a chance to talk about it with your parents, because it's got to be so touchy because, you know, how we think we remember it may not be the way that they remember it or it happened. I, I, I give you this years ago, years ago, I was out in the front yard watering my grass or something. And there was this little kid about six, seven years old, uh, riding around, riding around, riding around the bicycle. And he kept riding around and riding around. And it occurred to me, and I was probably 39, 40 years old at the time. It occurred to me that in his memory, he was this young boy who rode all day, and there was an old, <laughs> old man watering the yard, right? Because, because that's going to be his recollection when, honestly, it was 45 uh-huh. minutes, and there was a middle-aged guy at most, a young middle-aged guy at the, at the end, still a guy still in his 30s watering his yard. But but the point is, it's just the, the reference we have of, of what we pull upon in our memory, and I, I that would be hard to discuss. That's why I brought up talking with your parents, and I, and, and I know it had to be difficult, because the way they remember it, rarely do we remember ourselves as the villain of any story. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes. I know what you're saying. And I would say to you, there's a definite truth to that, and it sometimes can be surprising. You know, someone says to you, I don't remember that. I remember it this way. And uh, you know, it, how much you're going to get from that conversation is an interesting question. Um, I think when people agree on what happened, and that can happen as well, they agree that something was noxious, they agree that something was unhealthy or was healthy. When they do agree, it's a very interesting moment. It's a moment of sharing experience. But you're pointing out that there can also be disagreement and differences. Absolutely. But ultimately, in my interest is that it's the experiences we have and how we experience them that are important. That's what we take it. That's what we've taken. So um, in terms of growing, learning, changing, developing in one's life, especially as an adult, what we remember about childhood, it's our own individual experience, but the impact of that experience is what we're going to have to deal with. And so on that level, it's important to encounter that and understand what it was. See, right there, that's brilliant because that's what I always try to, to sit back and remember it. I'll tell my sisters because I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest and I'm an oops baby. So my oldest sister is literally 18 years older than I am, right? Her, oh, okay. Yeah, her, her, <laughs> that's her, another generation. Yeah. <laughs> her son is a year and a half younger than me and he's got, oh boy. And he's got two grandchildren. That are the same age as my yeah. children. Oh, boy. <laughs> but, but, but I always sit back and say, and I've had this discussion with some of my sisters, it's like, 
but you were at a different stage in your life. So what you remember and how you felt, because my father was an alcoholic and had many, many issues. Uh, talk about self-sabotage all the time. And, uh, and, and as I always tell my kids, you know, they'll ask me about him and I'm like, he was just so disappointing. That's all I can tell you is he was just so okay. disappointing. And uh, so I realized that their interactions were completely different because by the time he got around to me, he was a big train wreck, but he was a train wreck that was still trying his best to do a little better. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Does that make okay, sense? Okay, I hear you. So, uh-huh. so, uh-huh. so yeah. I always sit back and say your experiences with him, which they didn't tell me in detail until I was much older, and I asked why, and they said, well, because you were the only one who still loved him. And we wanted to keep oh. that for you. How about that? Okay. And so, and oh, so, heavy. but, but it made me sit back and realize every one of us had different experiences, just like a great, okay. a great parent. And, and I'm sure a great parent to me, my, my mother would interact with each of us completely different based on what we needed. You know? Okay. Isn't that interesting? Okay. And yeah. so the and same that's thing. the uniqueness. That's the uniqueness of individuals. That's what you're pointing to. It's the yeah. uniqueness of individuals. And absolutely. And so we all learn something different from our parents in those situations that, that your brothers did did you find they repeated the same mistakes? Um yes and no. Uh two did, one didn't. Um and I was uh, a middle child. My two older brothers were much older than me, and my youngest brother was much younger than me. So I was kind of like a middle-only child for a little while. Wow. Um, and uh, I was closer to my mother at the beginning of life than they were. Um, and I picked up a lot from my mother, uh, some good, some not so good. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in understanding what we've learned, uh, because it can be different. You know, I remember you pointed it out, and I, I'm remembering as we're talking about this, my oldest brother saw an interaction I had with my mother when I was a kid. Uh, mother took my blanket away from me, you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> you don't need this anymore. And <laughs> I was like four going on five. And I remember how the terror I felt. But my brother, my oldest brother said, you didn't feel anything. You were just watching TV. It was no big deal. <laughs> Wait a minute. You didn't see the terror. And he's looking at me like, terror? <laughs> so that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. And I'm, I'm on an analyst's couch 40 years later talking about terror. <laughs> okay, so I'm figuring, look, I'm figuring that they were levels of experience. How do you like that? You know, on the surface was what my brother was watching, and he didn't pick up any terror. But deep down inside, I was freaking out over the loss of my blanket. And there I am at 40 years old, 35, talking about it, you know. So I, I, I tend to put some validity in our individual interpretations of experience, because that's what we take with us. Yeah. And that's the pool of experience that can be repeated. And by the way, I want to make this point, Gary, because this is really good, a good analysis of these issues. I, I, I don't believe all experiences we have in the family are unhealthy by any means. Mm-hmm. I think we learn a lot of healthy stuff. We can even be unaware of the healthy stuff we learn and repeat it in our love lives successfully. If you grow up, for example, in a home where there's a lot of love and affection and, and there's a certain amount of, uh, of, of, of healthy relating, I think that's a, that's a source of learning that people can repeat and in their love lives. I certainly met people that have done so and, uh, it's a, it, it's a good thing. So I'm not saying that all your, your, your early family experiences are unhealthy and you're doomed to repeat them in your love life. I think it's really a mixed bag. If When I meet a patient, when I meet a person who has a string of disappointments, I call it the disappointing love life. You know, disappointing love life has a lot of re- repetition, I find, a lot of replication, replicating earlier unhealthy experiences over and over again. And I call it the disappointing love life because I'm trying to help people become aware that this is a phenomena. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a condition we can fall into where a correction needs to be made so we can get out from under it. 
Dr. Thomas Jordan. It's very interesting to me. Uh, it, it, and, th- and that's it. When you're talking about that, I, I think there's also something to be said that you can learn what not to do, you know, that you can pick up on uh-huh. that doesn't work. And I'm not going to do that. In fact, <laughs> I've told my sons that before. Absolutely. You know, when they give you the whole, uh, and I'm, I'm like, listen, I'm going to be doing stuff that you're going to go. I will never do that with my kids. I get it. I get uh-huh. it. And the, Absolutely. And, the and some joke, people come to that awareness on their own. And, yes, the, and the big joke to you, son, is that your kids will do the same to you. You know, so it's, 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 it's yes, yes, yes. And that, that's a beautiful thing. No, come on. That's a beautiful thing. And I've met a lot of people that have come to that understanding absolutely on their own. They didn't need five, 10 years of treatment to do it. They simply realized, and I, I, I study this. I, I, I try to figure out, okay, how did you come to understand that? Like I, I've worked with a lot of people with very thorny histories, very, you know, a lot of abuse, neglect, abandonment. And, 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 and then they have children and they're, they're wonderful parents. They're right there for their kids. They're never neglectful. They're never abandoning. And I'm always ready with the question, how did you do that? How did you pass? How did you make that correction? So I, I think it's it definitely within our ability to do that. People can come to that awareness. I am not repeating it over and over again, but unfortunately, a lot of people won't come to that understanding on their own and will end up repeating over and over again. The the hope is they catch it later on, three or four disappointments. Okay, I'm doing something over and over again. Let me stop. Let me take a look at it. Whether I do it, I look at it individually, whether I look at it in a counseling or therapy experience, I have to pay attention to what my psychological love life is doing in my love life. So we're going to take a quick break and I'm going to come back and share my, my epiphany of when I decided to change things with Dr. Thomas Jordan, Jordan, the author of Learn to Love, the guide to healing your disappointing love life. We'll be back with more right after this. If you're enjoying this podcast, then maybe you'd like to hear more. Gary Scott Thomas hosts the morning show at 95.3 KRTY in San Jose, and you can tune in at krty.com. At 8.30 each weekday morning, Gary and Julie talk to artists, songwriters, and industry insiders. You'll hear from people like Garth Brooks and Luke Combs, new stars like Ingrid Andrus and Maren Morris, and songwriters like Shane McAnally, Lori McKenna, and Luke Laird. You'll find the best in country music on the South Bay's best country, krty.com so we're back and so dr jordan i was telling you my little epiphany uh i had been married and i was married for 10 years and then got divorced and my the uh i got divorced because my uh my ex i uh, had decided two years after we got married she didn't want to have children uh, because she had okay as you know she had a she had an above average IQ. And some of those times you can't turn your brain off. So she would battle issues. And she's like, I don't think I want to take a chance on uh, passing this on, or I don't know if I can trust myself. And you're like, wow, you can't argue that, right? So married for another eight years. And then she finally came up and said, you know, you deserve to be a father. At some point, you need to be a father. So let's do this. And I'm like, uh, okay, because I'm one of those people, especially since I was a child of divorce, when I was in, I was in. I wanted to be all in, and this is what we're going to do. But understood the reasoning and stuff. And then I went through a number. I was single for 12 years and went through failed, failed, failed. And I will tell you that I was sitting in the backyard with my dog, sitting in a pool, drinking a glass of wine, reading Shakespeare, having a cigar, when it finally dawned on me that the (laughs) only thing that was the same was me. And we have, as an old fisherman, you'll know this, you catch the kind of fish depending on the bait you use. Ah, (laughs) yes, sir. (laughs) And I sat back and told myself, the problem is my bait. It's the bait uh-huh. that I'm throwing out, and I continuously catch these same fish. And the problem are not the fish, it's the bait. 
And that's when I, I finally, I, I literally decided to do a Costanza, being the old New York guy, you understand, where you go against your instincts, you go against yes, your instincts and go, no, no, that's the way I would have done it. I'm not going to do it that way. And with, within literally a month of having this epiphany, I met the woman who would become my wife and the mother of my children and literally my heart's desire. Uh, because I changed my, my bait. Oh, perfect. I would, I would take your story, change a little wording. Instinct becomes learning. The change you made was in your psychological love life. And the impact of it is unbelievably powerful. That's how strong the influence becomes when we change something on the inside. We change a lot on the outside. So you change your bait. Bait meaning psychological love life. And look what happens. Mm-hmm. A totally different person shows up. And and having to like, and you're saying that's why I was so interested when, when I, I read about you because I'm like, wow, hit, this is this is what I feel like I've done. And this is a guy who's written a book about it that, that he has, <laughs> that you've put in the research and you have the credentials to back it up. And the fact that you've looked at all this stuff and it, and it truly is learning, learning our, and, and again, you have used the word disappointing. I, I, I go with bad habits. We learn bad habits as we talked okay. about earlier. Yes, sir. That, that yes, we sir. come up and we think this is the way you interact with people. With you, it was, it was controlling females. I'm sure if I sit down and pulled it back, I can sit back and see where I kept trying to do things. Uh, uh-huh. and, and, you know. Where are you were fishing? Where are you were fishing? <laughs> exactly. Where right. I was fishing and, and what I thought I was trying to catch, you know, uh-huh. that, that, that I thought I wanted tuna, but I kept throwing shark bait out. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> and instead of a fish I could eat, right. I kept getting, catching fish that could eat me. <laughs> right. And all, and all the, and all the shark fishermen uh, looking at you like, uh, you're trying to catch tuna here? I don't, I don't think so. This is for sharks. Exactly right. And, 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 and for the people who are trying to catch sharks, I'm, I'm glad to throw that one back so you could catch them. <laughs> yeah, right. right. I'm here. Hey, they'll tell you. I'm here for sharks. Okay, man. Yeah. Good. This one's a big one, and it's a man-eater, so feel free to take this one yeah. run with it. Whatever yeah. you want to do. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Have as much fun with that as you uh, want to have. A, a uh, lot of symbolism in their words. Exactly (laughs) right. And so it's it's just fascinating to me that the whole concept of taking the time and really, it sounds like a trope, but finding a quiet place and literally allowing yourself to go down the threads of disappointment and honestly asking yourself, why was it disappointing? And what I found is it was mainly... Not that I'm tearing myself down, but I don't think I had a game plan or realistic expectations. And and it's easy. And I'm going to ask you to go on this trip, too, especially when you're in a relationship. It's easy to get bitter. That's what I've seen oh, in so many relationships. Absolutely. And I use I use the word in the book. I talk about multiple disappointments in your disappointing love life can turn into. Unfortunately, I use the word resignation. And I believe bitterness is one of the feelings that goes with resignation, where a person reaches a point where they say, tragically, love's not for me. I've repeated hurt over and over again. It's just not for me. It's not possible. There's nobody out there. Whatever observation they make based on disappointment, they reach a point where it crystallizes into resignation. And that's that's unfortunate. And I've certainly met a lot of people with that. I'm glad to say some people come out of resignation when they're able to study their psychological love life experience a little bit more. Think about some of the things you're talking about, what they can change on the inside in order to make a change on the outside, and then go back into the world of dating, love relationships, with a bit of a different emphasis, different perspective, a more conscious understanding of what it is they're looking for. You know, I I think it's very, in my book, I put together five questions um, in step one. And I, I constructed the book as a guidebook because I wanted people to be able to read it without jargon, 
without a lot of psychological language. Just read it and begin to reflect on their love life. I even put, uh, you know, like little little uh, lists and stuff that people can check off and use the book as a, a way to begin that journey to think inside. Let me look at the inside contribution to my love life. What am I doing? What am I repeating? And I believe that if you follow the steps in this process, you begin to get a conscious understanding of what you're bringing into your love life. And that's where the real and permanent change takes place. <laughs> See, I, I, I find that because I think... I people, my single friends will will laugh at me because I think they've just forgotten. But I think it's easier to find the relationship than to keep it. And I've got so yes, many sir. friends of mine who'll sit back and go, "No, I've been trying to find that person, and I don't. It's just so hard to date." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you can find someone to date. You can find someone to go to dinner with. You can find someone to that. But to build the relationship, and again, once all the changes happen, once the kids have been there, once you've been together eight years, you know, once the once the uh, <laughs> all over the house rendezvous stop happening, uh-huh. right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's then how right. do you adjust from that? And as I've said. How do you keep from sliding into that disappointment, bitter? And I love your word resentment because I think that's even a better word that, that you start resenting, you know, that I do this or we don't do this or, you know, this, we're not, you know, it's, it's, it just crazy is about. And, and I think if you can stop that slide, if you can pull yourself back and remember the things that you love about that person and try to yes, find the things that are still there. Step. Very important step. That's one step. Another step is to understand that our love lives require work. Uh, it's not just, you know, the falling in love process is, it's a wonderful, unpredictable, uncontrollable, mysterious thing. You can't make love come. Uh, it comes and goes on its own. Perhaps that's one of the best qualities of love. I wrote in the beginning of my book, this is not a book about love. This is a book about love relationships, because it's the relationship we form when we fall in love that contains the the love experience. It grows it or it stifles it. So it's really what we can do something about is the type of relationship we form when we fall in love. So when a couple, you're talking about a couple getting stuck on the rocks there, They've, 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 they've got hung up. Something's coming out in their personalities, perhaps, that is creating a problem that's not allowing the relationship to begin to continue growing and thriving. I think the idea that you can work on your love life, that when that happens, it's a moment where two people can say, let's do something about this. Let's figure out what the problem is, whether you go into couples treatment, whether you begin to talk with each other about your relationship rather than ignoring that topic, which, by the way, is not an easy topic to talk about when there's a lot of feelings going on between two people who've been together a while and are having distance and disagreement. But the idea of working on your love life is so very, very important. And I want to I want to add something to what you said when you said it's easier to find, harder to maintain. I use the word sustain a love relationship. I think that's true. Yet I would also caution that we can find the same kind of person over and over again, as per your mm -hmm. metaphor with bait and fishing. I think that uh, the whole psychological love life from beginning to end needs to be looked at. And it's not that complicated. It's basically answering the question, what have I learned about love relationships from my experiences in life, from my relationship experiences in life? And, and what have I learned? What's in my psychological love life? Once that becomes conscious, then people can challenge it. You reference challenge when you are describing your particular journey, mm -hmm. when you got to the point where you realized, I'm not going to do this anymore. <clears throat> the beautiful thing about that, and that's step two in the unlearning process that I talk about in the book, that we have the ability to challenge our experiences, to say to ourselves, something's wrong here. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to interfere 
with the desire to do that, with the habit, as you put it, to do that. I've learned how to do something. It's not healthy. I'm seeing multiple examples of that. I have to interfere with the automaton, the automatic aspects of that and begin to replace it by healthy choice, realize I have to move my love life in a different direction. When I became aware that I had learned dependency and control um, from my mother with, with, you know, to expect that from eligible partners, the realization was very powerful. And when I would go out with my friends, I'd go out to places, uh, singles places, I would realize that I was doing something I didn't like. I was attracted to people I didn't want to be attracted to. I was in need of hearing something about relationship rather than just impulsive relationships based on sex or just, uh, just you know, whatever feeling there was at the moment. I really wanted something different. And when I realized that, I began to shy away from certain situations, move more towards meeting people to the, who were more eligible for a relationship, change things around, move away from what's familiar and what's repetitive. And that begins the process of unlearning. And it's very important. <sighs> See, I, I just think that's, it, it, it's, it's so cool and it's, it can be frustrating it can be rewarding. It's children. It really is. Kids, I was telling everybody, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, if, if I could have met my wife when I was younger, we'd had six kids. We both agree. Uh, because I find them the most interesting things in the world. They're the most interesting people I know by far. And, and, mm-hmm. and they will, even when they're the biggest pains in my ass, let's be clear. <laughs> yeah. I, I still find them fascinating and they will stay, say stuff to me or they will have an observation that I don't have that I, that, you know, it never occurred to me the entire time, uh-huh. you know, that I'm like, I, I remember my son when he was like four years old, he goes, why do we pronounce it one and not one? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I went through my entire life, son, and I don't know, but I'm going to find out the answer to that question. I will give you that answer. And by the way, yes, we just all agreed to pronounce it one. That's the only reason why we, we all agreed just yep. to say one. And, and there's no language anything. I'm an English lit major. There's no language anything that the rule or anything that says it should be pronounced one but it was cool yeah, it, it, mm-hmm. but it was just cool that yeah. he had brought something to me at the age of four or five that i yes. had never considered i just took it for granted yes and he i i would say that he was experimenting with the possibility of doing something different that when our children ask questions about what everybody's doing, everybody calls it one. I want to call it one. <laughs> I want to be different. Uh, Dad, can I be different? Uh, <clears throat> Dad, can I, I? I can see another possibility here. We don't all have to do the same thing. To me, that's a child's wonderful acknowledgement, personal experience of individuality. Mm. And the I, moment when they realize that is a beautiful moment. It's like, I, I am an individual. I can look at something very differently, see its difference, comment on it, ask questions about it, and be there. And see, and that's that's the other thing. is, And we talked about this earlier in our conversation. I consciously understand that when I interact with their mother, I'm teaching them how to do it. And I, I can remember my parents having, as you sound like, loud, vicious arguments. And there's one thing I don't do is raise my voice. Neither one of us do. We just don't raise our voice because I understand as a child how upsetting that is. Even if you, even as if you were, and they took the blanket away and they don't act like there's big things, there's big things happening. And so. Yes. To Absolutely. This, to, to this day, it's like if we have a disagreement, it's like, well, okay, this is what I was thinking, and and we're gonna we're gonna go from there. But it's not gonna be at, at any point. And I've told my sons this too, guys. I can be as angry at your mother as it's possible to be. But here's what you need to know. I love her desperately and would not want to be anywhere else or with anyone else 
ever. Mm-hmm. Period. We're done here. Perfect. So perfect. And and just trying to let them know that you can have disagreements, you can have fights, you can have I was kidding everybody. I never doubt my wife loves me every second of every day, but it is an hour to hour decision on whether she likes me. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> perfect. Well, look, two people getting married you're going to guarantee disagreement. Why? Because let's be real, because there's two individuals getting married, two separate personalities getting married. There's no way you're going to have 100 percent agreement. And I'm not even sure you would want that, because that's like you're marrying yourself. You don't have another separate, different individual, unique individual in a relationship. So that's guaranteed. It's our ability to work out these problems, and they come exactly as you described. The love is the foundation. That gives you the motivation to work out the problem with the other person. But the liking, the personalities, the characters of the two individuals, that's where the differences show up. And that's where the possibility of compromise, cooperation, working out differences, making agreements, negotiating with another person, that's the wonderful problem-solving experience we can have in a love relationship. I want to point out something that I think is also, I want to add something. You know, when we what we learn from our families of origin, and the way you described it made me think of the phrase, you know, it's a classroom. It's a classroom where we unconsciously learn so, so much about ourselves, about relationships. We're we're observing. We learn from the way they relate to us. We even get instructions from time to time from parents uh, or others, other adults, when we're growing up about life, about relationships as well. You know. So, but what I what I discovered is that um, we we can learn beliefs about love relationships. Um, I believe all eligible women were dependent and controlling, right? Mm -hmm. We can learn behaviors, how we behave in a love relationship. And I discovered that there's, there's two things, two ways that learning can come. I can learn what to do in a love relationship by, by observing what's happened in my family of origin, for example, or I can learn who to pick that and have what is done to have it done to me. In other words, I can do, if I grow up in a home where there's abuse, unfortunately, right? Mm-hmm. I can learn to be abusing as a consequence of those experiences, or I can learn to pick partners who are abusing to me. So that learning behavior can go in two different directions. For me, it was picking partners who are like my mother. Um, and also one other thing that we learn, we also learn how to recreate a feeling that goes in love relationships. For example, um, I unfortunately work with people who are abandoned or neglected as children. Uh. And it's very common for such a person to find unavailable partners, emotionally unavailable partners. It's all, it's all, it's almost become a hallmark. Of, of what can go on unconsciously. People gravitating towards the same kind of experience that they had growing up. If they find an unavailable partner, say they get married, at some point in the relationship, that partner distances from the relationship, is not available emotionally. They experience the loss. The feeling of loss gets recreated again and again in their love life. So there's feelings that can be learned that they go with certain experiences and they too can be recreated in the course of adult love lives. So all of that needs to be moved away from, challenged, so something new can happen. You know, you talk about kids. I'll I'll bring this up. I'll share this story with you. I literally have a friend who said that the problem with his parents is they loved each other so much he thought the children were secondary. I'm like, really? Really? I mean, that that yeah. could happen? That could happen. Yes, sir. It can happen. Can happen. And I would see if I, if I was sitting with a person in my office and they were telling me about that, I would begin to think about a certain kind of subtle neglect. Wow. Uh, there are uh, sometimes there are parents that 
for example, two people can get married and have such a narcissistic investment in each other that they see the children as competing with what they need from the other adult person. And I would begin to make assumptions and check them out that there might be some unfinished childhood needs that are uh, unconsciously being reenacted in that marital relationship that might be getting in the way of the kind of parenting that needs to take place. So it raises questions. See, this just fascinating. This is why I could just go down this rabbit hole with you forever. But I'll tell you right now, I <laughs> I feel guilty, and, 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 and it's not through any any fault, but I know you talk about the importance of date night, and right now, I don't know when we have time in our lives for date night. I wonder if there's ever a timeout time, because we have we have two kids, and I say this knowing that one of my dearest friends has four children, and yet he and his wife find time for a date night every Wednesday. Every Wednesday. Beautiful. Yes, sir. Beautiful. And I (laughs) somehow, my wife has a very high-pressure job and works a lot, Uh and then my boys play sports. So every night... Every night is a, is a, uh, is a practice. And by the time you get to the weekend, then you do stuff with your friends, right? And I have fallen on, I've fallen down on date night. And I will tell, would tell you honestly, I worry about that making me, cause I can't control her. I, I, I worry about that making me distant. The words that you use, yes. distant, emotionally distant. Yes. Yes, I would put that under the category working on your love life and the different forms of that. What you're talking about is the form of working on your love life with someone you're married to, that you've been in a relationship with, that you have children with. Now, I think that working on your love life involves keeping the conditions going wherein the two of you can experience your relationship with each other directly you're the love you have for each other directly. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like keeping something going. It's like a little flame that needs to be protected and encouraged and taken care of. So date night with one's spouse is a wonderful concept within which to do that kind of encouragement because it permits the two of you to Push everything to the side just for a moment and have that experience of each other that reminds people in the relationship how important that other person is. Because, you know, in a way, and I believe this completely, I think that a couple in a family between the mom and dad, that's the foundation in a family experience. If that foundation is healthy, If that foundation is thriving, kept healthy and thriving, everything else receives a positive influence from the health of that relationship. So um, a date night, and and we're not asking for that much, too. I mean, the way the example you gave every Wednesday, right, they go out to dinner. I mean, it's not asking for a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, look at the hours. How many hours are we talking about? Mm -hmm. We're talking about hours to dinner, and the rest of the time, other considerations, family, the schedules, the kids, the jobs. In my belief, there's nothing, and I want to be clear myself right at this moment, more important than connecting with one's spouse at least, at least once a month, preferably once a week. Hmm. See, I told you I felt guilty. Now, <laughs> <laughs> and I made you feel more guilty, right? And I feel more guilty. <laughs> for a good cause, for a good cause. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and that's the thing. I think that the dichotomy. Uh, and, and again, I can only speak to straight relationships because I am straight. So I'm not trying to discount anybody. I, do, I don't know, you know, I have family members who are gay and, and it's not that I'm trying to go down any rabbit hole. I, I'm not. It's just I can only speak to my experience. So love does not discriminate. Uh, yeah, exactly right. So it, for me, it's like, how does 
for guys, and that's why I bring up the straight relationship for guys, when it comes to women, we set back and, it, and I think the bitterness starts to come about with the sex life, right? Because that's what we expect. And I think women, and again, I've, I've learned this from other people. It's, it's the emotional and not only emotional, because I think that gets carried away. It's how much are you helping? Because there's a lot of things to do at a house and a life. How much are you helping? And those two factors seem to be, you know, it's not that they're at odds. They're just different highways in most guys' mind. But they're not. They're literally the same road. But for guys, we think, well, if if this was happening more, then that would happen. No, 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 no. They're thinking, well, you know, for me, you tell me from your experience, how do you, how do those navigate? Uh, you're, I, I want to be clear on what you're asking. That what are the two, the two things the man's trying to put together? Well, th- because when it comes to emotionally connecting and date, you know, the whole date night, the whole thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, so emotionally reconnecting. We, yeah, yes. we tend to think of that as a sexual entity. Where oh yeah okay and, and and I think I think females at least again in my experience are looking yeah. at more of. The emotional thing, not only, not only are you listening, not yes. trying to solve. I think most men have learned uh-huh. that we're not trying to solve. Uh-huh. Also, how much are you helping? I try to make a conscious effort to make sure I am helping fold clothes, do laundry. I cook, you know, sweep, pick the kids up. I, I, I don't want my wife to feel like I'm doing everything by myself. And that's the complaint I hear from a number of women is, I, I, you know, I, I'm doing everything by myself. I think it's better than it used yes. to be when you and I were growing up as uh-huh. far as the roles of men. Yeah. And women. yeah. Helping, helping is in the right direction. I think there should be sharing. That's the word. I believe there should be sharing. Sharing moves us in the direction mm. of equality, yeah. uh, living together, sharing. When we're talking about sharing, when we're talking about equality, when we're not dividing things up too strictly or too rigidly in terms of roles, I think you have a better communal sense in a relationship of two people sharing together. Uh, you know, in my experience of men in treatment, I find that um, oftentimes middle-aged men learn a lot about the emotional part of their love lives their love relationship they learn something in treatment they they learn about how emotions are necessary to communicate how that reconnection experience is important i find that women sometimes learn it earlier than men uh men are busy doing other things um fixing things um uh, making things happen um other kinds of responsibilities that when people marry uh, the realization of emotional reconnection, the ability to to communicate about feelings is a skill that I believe can be generated, grown in a relationship. And oftentimes I find in our culture at the moment that women might take the lead with that. uh, want that emotional expression, perhaps a little more than the man's comfortable. But I find that a lot of men are open to learning about that, especially in middle age. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing. Um, just as women have become more independent, more independent, more self-sustaining in previous generations. So we're, we're moving towards a place where that equality, that sharing of experience together uh, the good news is I think it it uh, it bodes well for the future. Uh, our ability to be intimate is very important in 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 being able to sustain a love relationship over time. I love that. I see and, and I had to I had to touch on it because if we didn't touch on the sex thing, then then people are gonna send me letters going, Why'd you shy away from that? And I'm glad we did. And I love the word sex, sex is a wonderful gymnastic experience. If you do it with emotional reconnection, it's it's out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's if you don't have emotional connection, hey, 
Whatever. <laughs> well, and, and that's it. As I've always sat back and said, if there's no if there's no emotion, then all it is is friction. There's nothing else. It's just that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Close, and, right. and, and uh-huh. I that's all I have always said is that I, I had no interest. That was one of my epiphanies that I had the day in the pool, is that I don't want to ever have sex with another woman again unless it means something to both of us. And, oh, man, uh, and now, now you're talking about, oh. And then I, I literally said that to my wife on our first date. I, I, cause I was just all in, you know, I told you I did the Costanza and I told her, listen, this is where I'm at. And if, and if, if you want to wait until we get married, this was the first date. All right. I said, uh-huh. if we get married, <laughs> if you want to wait until uh-huh. possibility, if we get married, here's what you need to know. I'm all in. And she looked at me like, well, this guy's weird. Hey, and that's called a proposal. Yeah. And then, and then, and then I proved yeah. it to her over time. And so it was always fun on that. And I love your word sharing. I need to use that more in my, in my approach. I need to use the word sharing because that is a great, great word. I, I that's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's the intimacy. That's, that's one of the bases of intimacy in a, that's, Sustaining a love relationship involves two people sharing their experiences together, their responsibilities together, and being able to do that, I think, is fundamentally intimate. Uh, it's very important. And, you know, you know, ultimately, to put a cap on this sex versus emotional connection, uh, when you combine the two, when you make love to someone you're in love with, there's nothing better in this world. Amen. 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 (laughs) Dr. Thomas Jordan, author of Learn to Live, Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. I'm telling you, you need to pick this book up because all of this stuff is there and it it gives you your very own epiphany. For me, it, it, it just gives you that very own epiphany that you'll find. This hour has flown by. I just looked up and realized we're at an hour and I'm like, holy golly. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. This has been such a delight. I, I hope we can do it again because I'm sure you and I can find a zillion things to talk about. Oh, yeah. Just let me know when. And uh, I thank you, Gary, for inviting me. Absolutely. I've had a lot of fun and it's very meaningful. Thanks for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe, download a few more episodes, and please leave a review. Reviews really help us get this out to more people like you. Also, we'd love to hear what your favorite part was. Be sure to join us on social media to engage in even more unexpected conversations. Until next time.